Hey, book lovers, welcome back for another Adapted here at Book Circle Online. Today, we go all the way to the beginning of J.K. Rowling's fantastic and magical adventure with Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Stay tuned. This is Book Circle Online, featuring in-depth discussion, insight, news, and commentary on all the world's leading book titles and their authors. And now, Book Circle Online. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, or if you prefer Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, pick your poison. Yes. Drink your polyjuice. Get your <laughs> mangolds or whatever they're called. Um, we're talking about the book and, of course, how it got adapted into the movie that kicked off the franchise. Yes, The Wizarding World. Yes. Indeed. And that is the voice of a newcomer to this show, Jeff Graham. Yes, I'm flattered to be here. I've done some anatomies with Phil and Marissa, but this is my first time venturing onto their baby adapted so i appreciate you guys letting me join and that is a reference to anatomy a movie which is another show that marissa and i do where we do something similar to this but with movies anyway allow me to introduce marissa serafini hello everyone and i am phil svitek and for those of you joining us for the very first time well i must say a very warm welcome to you grab your sorting hat oh nice and take a take a seat um here's how the show works we go in depth with we start off with the book. We talk about the context, meaning you know how the author came to be, their life, and so forth, and why they wrote it. And then we get into the movie adaptation, or sometimes adaptations in this case, just one. And we talk about the differences and how it came to be and so forth, the how and the why. So just, just based on that alone, you can probably tell it's going to be pretty spoiler-filled. But um, the movie has been out for a long time. If, if you haven't seen it yet, I... I don't know what you're doing. You've been living <laughs> under a rock. Um, it's not a criticism, just 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 some words. <laughs> Earnestly, it's hard to imagine anyone not knowing about Harry Potter, though. Yeah, then you're just a muggle. Yeah, you're just yeah, a muggle. I muggle. would say, though, it's one of the most culturally ubiquitous media franchises around. Like, I'd say probably even more than Bond. I bet more people know who Harry Potter is. Absolutely. That's a good point. And to round it out, before we dive in, uh, there is a description. In the description, there's a zip file with photos and our and our rundown so you can follow along. So, with all of that administrative stuff out of the way, just like Albus Dumbledore has to do, mm-hmm. allow me to kick it off to you guys on your overall impressions of the book. And you can, of course, go into the history and how many times you guys have read it and so forth. So, start with, start with you, Marissa. Yeah, I'll start. I'd like to think I was introduced to just the Harry Potter books a lot earlier than most Americans were because fortunately growing up and I'll try to make this quick my dad he was big into publishing he used to travel a lot and he'd go to Europe a lot and one of his um, bosses recommended Harry Potter to him when he was in the UK so he actually brought the book over and uh, he would read the stories out loud to my brother and I when we were kids probably like 1998-1999 before they even really got big in America so I'd like to say I was exposed to them even earlier than the most normal peoples in America so I was very spoiled in that sense a philosopher's stone yeah philosopher's (laughs) stone Uh, Because also, side note, my dad was offered like a very high position up at Scholastic. I still keep him, keep giving him crap. I was like, we could have met the whole Harry Potter cast, (laughs) unless he turned it down. But uh, yeah, I've been attached to Harry Potter literally growing up. When the movies came out, I was the same age as Harry Potter until you know they took a while. So, but rereading the first book. I, it made me feel like a kid again. It, it's so easy to read. It's fun because you, you like Harry, Ron, and Hermione for the different personalities they are, the unlikable friendships, and the, the trials and tribulations that they go through. And, and that's what's relatable, and I think that's why so many kids 
enjoy just following these kids because you know there's something relatable in all of them and reading it now as an adult was like i still love them Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah, i've read through this series tons of times i'm a huge potterhead um and you guys uh are listening to the podcast i actually in person have an elder wand pen with me because i'm really cool the one and only (laughs) yes um unfortunately the power does not rest with me because i'm not the elder wand holder but that's okay we can get into that later um i love this book series i love this film series i'm not particularly into big universes like the Marvel Universe or even Star Wars, but Harry Potter's the one exception where I love everything about it and I'm pretty obsessed. This is probably my fourth time reading the first book because I've read through the series many times, but it had been a minute since I had read any of them. And I think what I appreciated about this reading was it became clear to me, first of all, how many ground rules J.K. Rowling sets for her universe in this book. There's a lot of references, like Sirius Black is mentioned in this book, Grindelwald is mentioned in this book. Um, Bathilda Bagshot, who's a major character in the seventh book, um, Newt's Commanders, and you know, there's just a lot of small things in this book that show how tightly she had a vision for her entire universe, even in this very first publication. And I also appreciated the tone with which this book was written. I think it very closely matches the sort of the themes and the plot of this first book, which is much lighter than the later books. I think she does a great job of matching tone, like with the prose, the actual prose tone to the content in the books, and that's true. This is the most childlike of the series. Yeah, one of the things that she has a grasp where every time you finish a chapter, especially very early on, you can't put the damn book down. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You just want to go to the next chapter, and and that just kind of continues throughout. And she she has a way with brevity. I mean, I understand that it's aimed towards children, but but, um, sometimes... People overuse and overexplain things when at the end of the day you just want to kind of illustrate it. So the fact that I understand Hogwarts through just a simple two-sentence paragraph is is fantastic. Mm-hmm. And she has that way uh, of being able to do it. Um, and right, right from the word go, there's just something mis- mysterious and magical about it all. And in many ways the strengths of this movie and then it kind of continues throughout is the mystery elements mm-hmm. you know so so things are happening and you don't quite know why they're happening you mentioned jeff that she's interweaving you know book seven into book one right. type of stuff but even just just the story itself she earns that trust where you're where you're reading something you're like why is this happening and it might seem like a throwaway initially but it's a big aha moment later yeah, I've kind of come to conclude that J.K. Rowling is above everything a mystery novelist. Um, a lot of people, when they when you go back and look at the seven Harry Potter books, structurally they are mystery books. Obviously there's elements of fantasy and thriller, but compared to other teen action books, there's not a ton of action in these books until the end. It's much more of planting seeds and leading us down certain paths to believe something to have that the rug kind of pulled out from us at the end. Her newest venture, she's writing a book series under the name Robert Galbraith, and it's a series of much more traditional kind of detective mystery novels, But I kind of think of her in the same way that, you know, like an Agatha Christie or Graham Greene, a lot of these British authors, mystery is such a central component to Britlet. And I kind of put her in that same camp. And I know she looks up to a lot of specifically mystery writers in that sort of school. Yeah, I I totally agree because Agatha Christie... very well-renowned uh, author in that her her own right, um, like it, it does kind of follow that same structure because mm-hmm. 
yes, Agatha, Agatha Christie, her stories are very individual if you think about them, but some of the characters do bleed over into the next film or mm -hmm. like five films down. Like they're still relevant, even though each movie or each story is pretty isolated. And I think that's what goes with Harry Potter. Like every book is really its own mystery story with their big plot point for that book, but characters do bleed over mm -hmm. into the next. And I, I like that because it just, once we know the people, you can just keep adding more onto every book. And as we we know, when you just keep reading, the books get bigger and bigger. Right. <laughs> Harry Potter. Absolutely. And, you know, I think one of the strengths of this book in particular is she doesn't bite off more than she can chew. Mm -hmm. um, yes, there's a lot that goes into it, but her first and foremost, I, I think... Objective is to highlight the world of, of magic. And then secondly to that, make us fall in love with Harry, Ron, and Hermione. Mm -hmm. And through that, we get to love Hagrid and Dumbledore and other people. You know, Oliver Wood, and it goes kind of down the line. But but they they are established very much like the central characters. And, and we love it. Um, before we dive any deeper, though, uh, Marissa, if you will, give us some context to J.K., or Joanne, as she is properly. Yes, Joanne. So she grew up, she actually was born Joanne Rowling, grew up in England, and uh, she always wanted to be an author at such a young age. But uh, and with the struggles that is life, when she, she actually was on government welfare for a while, and she struggled financially. And it was actually a trip when she was uh, delayed at King's Crossing, and that's where... It was basically the genesis of just the whole idea of Harry Potter. And she mulled over the idea for a good five years until she actually put pen to paper. And because she's such a writer, she likes doing multiple, multiple drafts of her own story. So she actually rewrote Harry Potter. And then, you know, after five years, it was finally rewritten. And then she distributed it and she got rejected 12 times until a, a small London agent took a chance on her. And that's how the first Harry Potter came to be. It's wild to think, too, that that small publishing company, Bloomsbury, was like a sort of art house, a small publishing company. And obviously now they're not anymore because Bloomsbury <laughs> continues to um, publish all the British editions of those books. But they're uh, obviously very world-renowned and reputable publishing company now, sing singularly because of that book series. Well, it's a fantastic lesson just in general. It's something that, Marissa, we've kind of talked about. It's, it seems to be a pattern throughout that rejection, rejection, rejection. Oh, yeah, so many times. And then you finally get the one person, and you guys know, um, just kind of giving you a behind-the-scenes window to the, to the audience, you know, Kevin talks a lot about the, no one can really break your career, but conversely, one person, in this case a publishing firm, can make your career. Right. And He's so our CEO, just for those listening. Yes, Kevin Undergaro. Yes. Um, and so, in that respect, you know, that, that was a life-altering moment. Yes, it, for the for the company, but also for, for JK. Right. They took that shot on her, and, you know, the rest is history, as they say, but obviously there was work involved. And I think another really interesting tidbit, I was watching an interview with her, and she was saying that that first rejection letter meant so much to her because it was an official rejection letter. And she said, what a cool indication for me that I'm a real writer. She framed it and put it up on her. She said, this is my first rejection letter, the first of many. But so many aspiring authors don't even get that rejection letter because they don't actually send out their material. So to view that as a victory, I think, is a really cool lesson to take away from her. Yeah, because a, a lot of artists are too bogged down by criticism that 
you know, the stuff just lives on its shelf. Right. So she got it out there enough to get a rejection letter, which she viewed as a huge victory. Yeah. And the cool thing is that once it was finally approved and printed, they only printed 500 copies. And so if you actually think about it, 500 <laughs> is not a lot. But it, it received, like, good good reviews and stuff. And then slowly but surely they, they kept printing more. And then in March of... So that was 1997. And then in March of 1999, 300,000 copies were sold in the U.K., so it, it definitely grew just in numbers and in demand. And it's interesting. I, I kind of always attribute it to, like, movies. Sometimes art house movies start very small, and then they, they expand into more and more theaters. So it kind of had a similar path in that way. I remember you mentioned, like, you were you were on the Harry Potter train <laughs> before any of us. And I would like to think that I was pretty early on there. Like, as soon as it came out in... In the United States, I remember it, it was sort of a big thing, but not. it took a while for people to catch up on. Mm-hmm. And I remember the like the word of mouth was just crazy on this. Absolutely. I mean, it just because I kind of saw, I mean, granted, I was young, but I did witness how big it did get so quick in America. Because uh, when I, I would just remember being in grade school, my teachers would read it in class. And the, my my classmates had never had heard of Harry Potter or the stories. And I'm like, I read this like two years ago. Mm-hmm. And so I just remember like as well as the reception was from just like the peers now um, at that time in real time. And then like the following books that came after, everyone was like, it's Harry Potter. It, it bloomed so quickly in America. Yeah. Um, before I, I want to give you, Jeff, a chance to talk about the controversy surrounding the Philosopher's Stone versus oh. the Sorcerer's Stone. <laughs> And what do you, you know? And for those who don't even know what I'm referencing, give some context to what that even is. Well, obviously, when a book is published in 80 different languages at its peak, there's going to be variations in titling. And the original intended title of this story is Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. That's the British title that. Well, we should just say the title that J.K. Mm-hmm. Rowling thought of. But Scholastic was worried that Americans weren't smart enough to know what a philosopher was. So they insisted she change it to Sorcerer's Stone. Similarly, she was going to publish under the name Joe Rowling or Joanne Rowling. But publishers equally thought that her name wouldn't be marketable to boys. Because who would read a female author? Because yeah, women, right? Travesty. Um, so that's... A reason, that's the reason her pen name is J.K. Rowling. So that's two interesting publishing requirements that sort of paint how and why some of these early decisions were made in this world. Yeah, and, you know, interestingly enough, you could look at, at that as a negative and so forth, but it, what's nice is, like, she was able to break through, and now if she wanted to, I do think she could start to change, you know, and, and use her full name, let's say, and right. m- m- kind of break down that stereotype. As far as the Sorcerer's Stone versus Philosopher's Stone, and to be honest, I actually think the Sorcerer's Stone fits a little bit better. I do, too. Because it conjures magic versus philosophy. It's just like, what are we studying, Aristotle today? Right. Right. I don't think they really paint Flamel like he's a philosopher in the books. So yeah. it is kind of... I know she prefers it and wishes she would have put her foot down, but I'm kind of like, eh, he but, feels more like a sorcerer to yeah, me. And, and sorcery does, it just goes kind of hand in hand with just the magical elements that this book is. Right. And, and if you're trying to appeal to a wide wider audience such as americans you know you're going to throw in sorcerer because that's more of a general broad term that we can all understand it's more on brand yeah yeah we'll talk about the themes in one quick minute but i i just gotta applaud this number one what i love about the book is they're they 
there's always new additions, and I in particular love the additions with the pictures because mm. uh, they had some great drawings in the the regular Scholastic book and at the start of every chapter. But the actual picture books nowadays um, are just fantastic, and I, I love that they're drawn because they, it is so visual. And you know, when you, when we talk about the movie, you can obviously tell why this was made into a movie. There's just so many visual elements, right? Um, but before we do talk about the movie. Let us talk about the themes of the book. Um, so many to, to sort of talk about, and, and just even from that basic standpoint, the world building, right? Very plainly and simply, you understand what a muggle is, you understand the wizarding world, and she doesn't, just because there's magic in there, I feel like she doesn't use it as a crutch of like, oh, well, it, if it doesn't make sense, it doesn't matter because it's magic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah no. it's been very important for her to be logical in every decision or moment that's happening in her book. She talks about that, how logic is an essential part of what she does. And it's because really, if, if we do think of her as a mystery novelist, the ability to, for clues and moments to add up in a way that's satisfying to readers is essential to succeeding in that kind of storytelling. So no matter how quote magical the books get they're always grounded right and what i enjoy about like especially the first book and now you know i personally and i think most of us have read all the books you you can tell that the first one is very like um foundation basic magic i mean you have transfiguration Mm -hmm. you have levitation so like easy types of spells and enchantments that we can all understand and then while you keep reading onwards all the books in the magic gets more technical gets more advanced and as we're understanding the world better we're understanding the magic elements better with the characters too so if you think about the first one i mean yeah few magical things happen but we can all understand it's not within the realm of impossible mm-hmm. no and, and harry's he's a wonderful character but he's also a device he he's our surrogate mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know we're entering a magical world no different than harry true yeah. and so yeah. you know for the most part if we don't know it harry doesn't know it either so guess what we're gonna both learn together smart yeah, the one thing I will say, it's funny, on this read, I did feel like there was a couple times that that sort of hindered the story where you get a lot of Harry just interviewing Hagrid for, like, the first third of the book, just being like, what's this? What's this? And, of course, we have to learn. And it might be that my patience is a little less there because I know this world so deeply now. But mm-hmm. it is true that without Harry's lack of knowledge, it might have been more challenging for J.K. Rowling to relay that information to us. But I like even going to the the even like the basic knowledge of how many canuts to a, a galleon mm-hmm. or, or what have you, um, and I and to a sickle, you know, like just the exact number of realizing they have a whole monetary system that's completely different from ours, but we can understand it to the point that it is relatable because we here in America and even people in UK and all over they have their own financial system. So breaking it down for a way to just understand, I like that too because we're learning with Harry as he's going along. Yeah. And she she places enough, you know. You mentioned like transfiguration and so forth, and like I I really love the setup of the classes and so forth. Like herbology is another one, and and you you go through those various elements, and there, there's at each chapter nothing nothing repeats. Mm-hmm. It, and as I mentioned earlier, like the story just moves at a lightning pace, um, and I, and I appreciate that, and and the fact like. Um, it, I mentioned that one of the biggest strengths is the trio's friendship, mm-hmm. just like us. Um, Who's who? You would be... I'm probably Ron, right? <laughs> yeah, probably. 
Um, anyway, uh, that's neither here nor there. The, the point being that it takes a while for even like them to truly become friends. Yeah, you know, Hermione is kind of on the fence, but then, but then she becomes involved. To your point, Phil, though, I think what I really appreciate is you're talking about there's not much fat on this story. Mm-hmm. Every time you see some of this world building, like class, it's still contributing to the narrative. So the troll scene, for example, we find out later is directly related to the fact that the troll was one of the trials related to the trapdoor blocking the stone. So J.K. Rowling does a good job of allowing us to see a transfiguration class, but letting that also be a character moment where we see that Hermione's a know-it-all. So mm-hmm. none of this world building is done in vain. It's all done is an efficient way to still tell us the story, which is what's her most important objective here. Right, and I, I like the troll scene too because it, this is like the first moment where Harry, Ron, and Hermione had to work together just mm-hmm. to survive. And that is what really kick-started their, their true friendship is like, hey, we've been through this together. Now they're like officially bonded in, in a way. And it's usually like when people overcome something together, they they become closer and it like this was the catalyst of the true friendship, and I, I enjoyed right. that definitely. And w- one of the things I appreciate, like it, she knows how to handle Harry quite well, because in that respect, you would look at someone like Harry and the fact that he is famous, if not handled correctly, the, the, none of this works, right? And so we have to fall in love with Harry right from the word go. And she uses obviously very time and tested tropes of living with mean, uh, you know, the step. So, like it's not his family, right? Right. Mm-hmm. I go back to like Cinderella or something like it's that. It's very British, very European to have like crappy step or aunts and uncles and orphan like Extended orphan families. Narratives. Yeah, it's very European. Yeah, <laughs> um, absolutely. Um, shall we start to talk about the movie? Unless you guys want to, in particular, talk about anything. I, I feel like we'll tie the two together once we get into both. But I yeah. just wanted to give you a shot at it. Okay, so let's talk about it. Um, I don't think. It takes a genius to figure out, like, that we should make this into a movie, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And now, th- this is a more modern stat, but just th- think about it this way, right? Like, the culmination of everything. There's the Bible, there's the Quran, there's Harry Potter in terms of <laughs> book sales. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, it, you know what I mean? Like, obviously, at, at a certain point, like, at that, the, the movie actually didn't come out until 2001. Obviously, there's the, you're, you're shooting it and so forth, and there's some development time. But for the most part, at that point, I feel like you've hedged your bets. Yeah. In terms of what this is going to be. Marissa, would you like to provide us further context? Yeah. So, in 1997, producer David Heyman, who's been, you know, part of all of the films, uh, he was searching for a children's book that could be adapted into well-received films, and he, of course, found Harry Potter, and he pitched it to Warner Brothers, and in 1998, Warner Brothers bought the, f- the film rights to the first two Harry Potter books, and uh, Christopher Columbus, he was the director, he, he wasn't actually the first initial choice, it was actually Steven Spielberg, they went hmm. to him first, but Spielberg t- turned it down because his vision was more animated, um, and he wanted Haley Joel Osment, because at that time, Haley Joel Osment was his, like, muse, um, just for acting-wise, and the Warner Brothers didn't really like that, they're like, nah, no, this should be a live film. And, uh, you know, they went through the list of directors and Christopher Columbus got a part of it. And it, I mean, obviously, it kind of goes from there. But with the, the first two Harry Potter films, all the rights, J.K. had a strong demand um, that the casting 
would be only British and Irish actors. Um, she she opened it up to to the Irish because uh, Richard Harris, who played Elvis Dumbledore, that was really her her only caveat that it was British and Irish actors. Hence, we got you know Daniel Radcliffe, Rupert Grant, and Hermione Granger, and then a, a slew of like big UK stars at the time. I mean, we have Robbie Coltrane. And Alan Rickman, Maggie Smith. I mean, like they're all reputable names, even back then, um, in the late '90s, early 2000s. So, yeah, we got the cast together, and and it was adapted by Steve Close and produced by David Heyman. One one of the things I appreciate about this movie, right? Like, they're obviously you kind of have to go into it, make wanting to make the best movie possible, because if that movie works, then you can continue it. Right, and the fact that like I, I look at it from the casting alone. If they miscast any of these people, you know you can recast them and so forth. But um, with, with apart from like the tragic death of Dumbledore, um, everyone else stays for the rest of the series, mm-hmm. and that's just pure brilliance. You know, like how I don't know about you guys. I I, I always get very disappointed. Like if if they have to recast Harry Potter like midway through, I'd be like, eh, it's weird out (laughs) it's it's crazy i mean it's true of the books too i mean that was one of my thoughts reading the first book is the tones do change but considering how remarkably sure-footed this first novel is in this series of seven books the fact that the template and the formula of this is a year at school there's going to be some kind of deus ex machina at the end and all of that plays through so consistently so in the books, that's impressive, but even more so in a film series. I mean, even just making a movie is a miracle to have great casting, get everyone on board. And so to make seven, well, eight, really, continuous films with the same cast and enough of a thematic and directorial through line is just, it's incredible. And this first movie did have to be good for it to, for that eight, that eventual vision to come true all right and you have to think about and you have to give just applaud to the cast for sticking with it for so long mm-hmm. and the producers who were with it even before them but and and warner brothers for actually pumping out eight films in the matter of 10 years that is such a fast turnaround for as big as these films were mm-hmm. and w- when you look at it one of the interests like with the first movie with this movie in particular it for the most part well we can highlight all the minor nitpicks but it sticks and they are nitpicks right it sticks to the original book for the most part very closely very close it was even more loyal than i realized it's funny i think before doing this exercise i would have been like yeah it's a pretty close adaptation but i was actually found it was more loyal to the book than i even expected it to be yeah i think i think I qualify uh, uh, the two biggest changes that I noticed. Number one, the way the the dragon is handled. And number two, mm-hmm. the fact that Malfoy isn't as involved in the beginning. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, Malfoy in general is a little bit of not as much of a major character. I think the trapdoor stuff isn't handled very similarly either to me. Oh, you're talking about um, when they're going through? All the challenges. Yeah, the challenges. You want to expand upon that? Sure. Um, in the book, so just to catch you guys up, obviously in this book, the there's a stone that's being hidden at Hogwarts. That's the Sorcerer's Stone. And the professors of Hogwarts have all created tasks and challenges that is guarding the stone. Um, a couple of those look pretty different. Um, in the book, the way the keys are handled feels pretty different. Um, there's a potions challenge that I think is a very important component 
component to Hermione's character development that the film leaves out. And they go through the empty troll room. I guess that's not that different. And I understand why those choices were made, but it does, because it's near the end of the film, and it, I do think it has an effect on the way we um, receive the climax as a viewer. Well, usually, film film's harder to work with more tasks. Like, you right. usually do it in pairs of threes, so mm-hmm. if you kind of look at it, the overall challenge was in pairs of threes. Yeah. You had um, you had the keys, you had you had the leafy thing. The devil's snare. The devil's snare. Snare. And, and then you had chess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they already got Pat. I mean, you could technically count Fluffy the fourth. Right. And I think right. the truth is, like, filming a logic puzzle isn't the most compelling thing as an audience. Reading mm-hmm. about it is fun, but, like, watching Hermione pick out beakers probably isn't the most fun way to spend the last 20 minutes of your viewing experience. Yeah. Either way, I think it's such an important part to understanding who Hermione is, so I was bummed it was left out. Yeah, I mean, it, it is a good character-building scene for Hermione, but with the more books that we read and more movies that we see, we do... S- under already understand how smart Hermione is. Right. So just removing this scene doesn't take away from her character. It takes away a good moment, but it doesn't take away who she is. And like we already know she's intelligent and all that. And um and you gotta remember this is actually a fairly long film. It's like two and a half hours yeah. for like a regular film. For, for kids, kids movie. For kids. So at the point where we're at the trap door, we're already two hours in. Right. So if you break up the momentum with something as not visually as enticing as looking at beakers full of liquid, <laughs> you, you would lose the kids' attention. So I don't blame them for removing it. Right. Damn kids and their attention spans. I know. I know. We're they don't like their beakers. Uh, what The movie, what I like the script itself does do away with a lot of... It takes the spirit, but like early on in in the book, there's uh, Dudley's friends that beat up on Harry, and there's the odd babysitter which she can't take Harry, which is why he ends up at the zoo. This is just so do away with that. You know, at the end of the day, the quicker in essence you get to the point that Harry, you're a wizard, movie wise, is going to be a lot more enticing. Right. And so I appreciate, you know, they don't ultimately sacrifice the spirit of the book. I agree. So. No. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. And speaking of the loyalty of the script to the book, um, Steve Close takes a lot of the direct dialogue that these characters are saying word for word and puts them in the script, which for those of you guys, well, you've been listening to this podcast, I'm sure you know, it's actually, that's not very common to take exact conversations and transplant them directly into a script. And I think sometimes it doesn't do the movie any favors because some things read differently than they're actually spoken. I think Quirrell's dialogue in particular reads better than it plays in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, you can't disparage something for being loyal. So You, 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 you think that, that, that Quirrell isn't quite as good? Yeah. There's the one line where he's like, sounds like something you'd need, eh, Potter? And there's just <laughs> reading it is one thing, but hearing it spoken, it, it's, I don't always believe it. I don't know. But, I mean, Steve Cloves is an amazing writer. I just think his loyalty may have been to a fault a couple times, dialogue-wise. I think I, I appreciate how he pulls off some of them, right? Um, mm-hmm. th- there is that interaction with Malfoy that I'm talking about that didn't happen in the movie, but they repurpose it in a different way when they're at the staircase and McGonagall goes away, mm-hmm. and Malfoy introduces himself, and he says, I can tell the good ones from the bad for myself. Thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, he does a good job of a couple transplant moments. What about you, Marissa? How did you um, view the translation, if you will? I mean, it, it is pre- rings pretty true, and Jeff and I were talking before the show, is that uh, 
even though some situations are slightly different and how they were executed in the film from what they were from the book, the outcome is still the same. Mm-hmm. Like, the, for example, when Ron, Harry, Hermione, and Neville actually are the ones who see F- Fluffy, the, and then they, um, you know, so, like, the different things, and also taking Norbert up to the, the tower and then getting in detention, it plays out differently in the book. Yes, they deal with the dragon, but they still get detention in the end. So, like, the outcomes are still the same, even though beats are slightly different. Mm-hmm. And and I like that because it still gets us to where we need to go in in the book. It still gets us from scene to scene. Yeah, I would say the other big factor of it is, like, the Forbidden Forest. Number one, there's no Neville. Number two, we're missing two of the centaurs. But the whole prophecy idea that plays so heavily into the later films is not really introduced. Yeah, it's true. Mm-hmm. We don't spend much time with friends in Bane in the Forbidden Forest in this one. And it's just friends in this one, whereas we meet the mm-hmm. other centaurs Maybe in the book. Ronan and Bane. Yeah. Yeah, the moon is bright tonight. <laughs> yeah. um, it is. <laughs> the, one, the one tonal comment I'd have to say is I do think the book is much funnier than the movie. I find J.K. Rowling to be a pretty funny writer, and I think the books get funnier as they go on. Mm-hmm. But I think especially Ron is kind of directed to be a little bit more earnestly doe-eyed than I think he's cheekier in the book. Um, and I think part of that owes to Chris Columbus's direction. I think I like Chris Columbus a lot. I love Home Alone, but I think sometimes his direction can be a little child centric. And I think some of the cheeky adult stuff, even that's in the first one, is sort of sucked out of the movie. Well, I, I think like when I look at kid moments in the movie, um, I forget his name. He just keeps blowing up everything. Seamus. Seamus. That wasn't in the book as much, right? No. Correct. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, it's a visual gag that that could work for a movie that, you know... Right. But even the way that humor plays feels a little bit like it's geared toward children, whereas I think some of the humor can play more to a teen or even adult audience in the way J.K. Rowling writes. Right. Seamus' humor is more slapstick humor, which yeah. is it's still funny because it also just plays to that is true to their characters because they are still first years. They are still learning magic in right. that sense and, like, conjuring terrible spells and literally blowing up in your face that's funny to kids Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. let's talk about uh quidditch because uh quidditch in and of itself when you you talk about sticking to the text uh the way quidditch is explained is completely opposite of the book Mm -hmm. and yet both manage to work quite well it makes sense it still makes sense and I, i love how even the the, the movie adaptation we get like one particular scene of what explaining it but i still understand the sport have i never played it or never watched it i still understand all the rules well marissa if you're like my female friends and i don't want to speak on your behalf you are probably excited that oliver wood was featured as heavily as he was in the first film oh i was i don't know if that's the case or not but i know I like wood. at least at that age my sisters were jealous of the bludger during that scene is the way i'll put it <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. He's I'm more... cute, man. He's he's cute. <laughs> no crush on Harry Potter if we're going down this route. Mm. I mean, Harry Potter's cute too. But In the wood, later films, but Wood. Mm-hmm. All right, fair Moving enough. On. I know he's a fan favorite, Oliver Wood. Him yeah. and Robert Pattinson are the two. I think scenes okay. doing heartthrobs. Interesting. I'm more shocked that like Quidditch actually became a Muggle sport. What do you mean? At oh, college at camp, colleges, yeah, yeah, yeah. At colleges, you can play Quidditch. Yeah. I had friends who were on the team at our university. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't play? I was pretty busy in college, but I would have. Um, 
I said, it's, it's amazing. I know we're talking about the movie and the book, but it's just amazing the amount of spinoffs, essentially, for lack of a better term, that you, that you have from just this. This is the initial thing that kickstarted everything. Especially because Quidditch, they do a really good job of realizing it in the movie. I think it's a pretty exciting scene, but... And J.K. Rowling has talked about this. The sport itself is kind of silly. Because oh, very silly. the snitch is way too overpowered. Like, the yeah. role of Seeker. Yeah, I mean, it, it, most of the games that we we read about in the in the novels end up... Like, they seem like 15-minute games. Right. Or even if they're long... The game doesn't really. The game is made with the snitch, so you know it's if it's just quaffle points going back and forth. Eventually, the seeker is just going to end the game, and that team will win. Except not not necessarily because J.K. Rowling she she had an interview saying because um, they questioned whether like the snitch was the most powerful thing. Even though you catch the snitch and it, you automatically win 150 points in and the game, that doesn't necessarily guarantee you the win of the game because J.K. Rowling says uh, a team could work long and hard and persevere and put the, in the time and effort to still rack up a lot of points, even though the opposite opposing team could end the game the one who worked harder and longer and accumulated more points can still win so we can have a whole quidditch uh tactics session like if if i was the losing team and i could prevent the the team that had more points from like actually getting the snitch is that advantageous to me or are we just eventually just going to lose by a trillion points to 150 or something like that right it's happened twice the meaning is like the the main takeaway is you can still work and work hard and persevere and that can still win you the game in the end mm-hmm. in terms of the national cup it's happened twice since 1400 uh, look at you did you read that in hogwarts history or uh, the history of magical of the fourth book they talk about it because you know that's when they go to the tournament Turn or not the, the tournament, tournament but the uh world cup fair enough all right um so let's do this let's uh we always like to well actually uh, i want to talk about snape a little bit before we pick our favorite characters only because snape whether you've read the other books or seen the other movies, he's one of the most intriguing characters of the series overall. Um, and even from, I'll just stick to what is here in both the movie and the book. He's both good and bad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he, 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 what's missing from the movie is the backstory of Snape. We get it in the last one. We get it in the very last one, but we had to wait. But the, but the book, ten years. To but the it. book gives you a pretty decent um, explanation of like you know he he was in. He was in love. Like, James Potter saved his life, and he felt angry indebted. because he's now indebted. indebted. Right. And this was his way of, you know, essentially honoring that. Right. So, um, I don't know. What did you, th- you, you think of Snape? I mean, admittedly, the first... It took me a long time in warm-up to Snape, and I think that that was the purpose because he is a long-running character that eventually you had to grow to love and appreciate. I think Alan Rickman, you know, rest in peace, um, he did such a great job because he was so good at being so dislikable, and that was the purpose of Snape. Like, mm-hmm. we're not supposed to like him. He's a dark, mysterious guy who's always giving Harry Potter crap for literally nothing. We're like, why? Why? And so it does take J.K. Rowling a long time to properly establish his backstory and then as an audience generally actually feel for him and understand why he did everything he did. Mm-hmm. Um, but you don't get it in the first book. Yeah, I mean, Alan Rickman is so good in this role. I mean, in general, one thing I really like about the Harry Potter movies is say what you will about them being, you know, teen or like adolescent magic movies, but they really do have the cream of the crop of like BAFTA winning Shakespeare actors from the UK playing these parts. 
I mean, you have I, the fact that Judy Dench isn't in these movies is surprising because right. like everyone else, like Clearly Gary Oldman, fame isn't everything. <laughs> just I just think of her in like the Maggie Smith class of like you know, mm-hmm. I mean like all it's it the American equivalent would be like if it was like Meryl and Julia Roberts. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like it's all these BAFTA winning British actors. So I think. Not only is Alan Rickman great as Snape, but all of these parts are very well realized by the actors. I like that they're not necessarily directed to be these whimsical, flimsy characters. They're they're grounded, solid performances that we get in these movies. Yeah, who would you say is is your favorite portrayal from you know from book to movie that realization? I always loved McGonagall because mm. reading it first as a as a kid, understanding and. I'm like, I'll just reiterate, they were read to me. I didn't personally read them until later. So, like, my first exposure were reading. And for some reason, I didn't picture a female for McGonagall, Mm. even though, like, the book obviously is very more descriptive. But for some reason, I remember I never really pictured a female until I saw it realized on screen. I was like, oh, McGonagall's a a more older, mature woman. I was like, I get it. She was very authoritative. Um, she she was sweet when she needed to be, and she was stern when she needed to be. And I, she is such a consistent character throughout the books too. But yeah, I mean, who doesn't love Maggie Smith in the first one? It's funny. I like Maggie Smith. I don't always love her as McGonagall personally. That's fair. Um, and in terms of like the characters being most accurately realized, I think Hagrid's re- portrayal in the films is so so good. I think, like, he nails that, like, lovable oafishness, that deep, deep affection he has not only for Harry but for animals. And, um, yeah, to me, he's the most accurately realized book-to-movie translation. Because I think Dumbledore is a huge misstep in most of the movies compared to the books. Yeah, he just... uh, I know he's an all-powerful wizard, but he he just seems, like, too old. No offense to him. In this one, I think. And then I think later he seems... I, I think Richard Harris is great. Wait, it's Michael Gambon in the later Michael ones. Gambon. But I don't think it's quite right, personally. And I'd be interested in the comments if you agree. To me, Dumbledore's they never got him quite right in the film series, compared mm. to the books, at least. It's a, just a different Dumbledore than we see in the books. I gotta shout out the Dudleys. Yeah, because the Dursleys. And the Dursleys? Yeah. yeah. The, the Dudley Durs. Yeah. Yes. Vernon. Um, and then Petunia. Petunia. Yes. Because in a large sense, they're the unsung heroes. I know they're unlikable, but um, but these actors are fantastic in their own right, and they just go for it, mm-hmm. you know. And they're so good at being unlovable, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I and I appreciate it. They they ironically found a humanity, and in finding that humanity, made made me hate them. <laughs> yeah, all the villains. I mean, I think the best portrayal of any character series wide is Umbridge. So the fact that it's really the villains who I think are completely capturing the parts speaks not only to the performances, but I think also J.K. Rowling's ability to write compelling villains. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's, it's, it's as much as there's the theme of good and evil, too often times evil's not fully explained. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate that as the series goes by, you, you go deeper and deeper into he who must not be named. Yeah. And you, under, you start to understand. You don't like it, but you understand it. Right. Right. So, um, all right. Well, the good news is it got an A on Cinema Score, very highly rated overall on Rotten Tomatoes, eighty percent, which is that's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and you got to remember, like Harry Potter came out before Rotten Tomatoes ever came out, um, so the the rating system's like super different now compared to now. 
what has been it's 2018 like 13 years ago 17 years ago Mm -hmm. i can't do math um so the rating system even then it's like literally word of mouth and just the successful rate back in 2001 it was the highest grossed film of that year and it came out in november 2001 it came out at the end of the year wow um so to be the most grossed movie in 2001 in just a two-month span good for them that's Mm. saying something and certainly that John Williams score helped yes. this man. Yeah. He is a legend. It was funny watching it this time. I didn't remember it being as scored as it was. There was a couple times I thought, like, man, there's a lot of music in this movie. Maybe a little. But I think that's a Chris Columbus thing, too, because I think Home Alone can be a little overscored, too. But that's just my opinion. All right. Yeah. I- Got behind it. I thought it's fun. Yo, I like I like the music. It's that Diagon Alley theme. I think repeats three times. It's when they go into the Great Hall again, and mm-hmm. that one kind of tires me out. But okay, yeah. I mean, I I think the one that really stands out is Hedwig because that that's the score that goes throughout every single film. Mm-hmm. Um, it becomes the most consistent. But that's the brilliance of John Williams, right. where every individual score in this movie is so memorable in its own right. For sure. Like, you, you name whatever score and you can hand pick or where exactly it is in the movie. It's like, mm-hmm. And I think that's testament to John that it's so memorable. Absolutely. Well, as we wrap things up, please do let us know what your thoughts and opinions are about this book. I mean, it, it's just so iconic. The fact that we're on number two in the Fantastic Beast series in terms of movies is already incredible. We've covered both those movies on Anatomy of Movie. Um, I mean, could, you, you can't overhype this, what this book has done. Um, it, it really truly deserves all the accolades it has gotten and all the praise that it has, you know, just managed to do. Yeah. yeah. Uh, um, and as an adult, I, I, I still... Maybe it's a bit of nostalgia, but I also think like it just it just works for adults. You know, mm-hmm. I, I remember adults uh, did read Harry Potter, and it wasn't just kids that made it successful. Right? Oh yeah, it's like my father read this to me, so like, and he loved it too. And I think that's the great thing about the books is that it doesn't just appeal to the kids. I mean, yeah, when you read it, it's actually in like young adult type of fiction, but with a lot of universal themes that adults can enjoy. And while you read the books and progress forward, there, there are different locations, and it does get progressively darker um, as the people grow up with it, as adults grow up with it, and it, it hits a lot of just universal stories, situations, and themes that anybody of any race, religion, demographic can relate to. Yeah, I think, and to credit J.K. Rowling, like, her themes have always been adult, because really, this book and every book in this series are just a meditation on death. I mean, this one, obviously, every book is about Voldemort trying to figure out a way to avoid death. And in this case, it's the stone, and the second one, it's the diary. There's also racism, you right. know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Prejudice. Yeah. All that. Um, d- yeah, with the house elves and Mudbloods. Um, Mud yeah, I think like the themes of her books, however the tone or the storytelling is, they've always been particularly adult themes. And I really do think like this this book, I know so many people never read until this book and like Harry Potter, like thank God JK, you gotta write more books because it's the only stuff they'll ever read. <laughs> yeah, um, Which is a huge testament but also quite sad. Right. Uh, one way or the other but um, 
All right. Well, we're about wrapped up. Marissa, do you want to tell them what we will be covering next time here on Adapted? Yeah, so our next book will be The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by one of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, part of the, the Chronicles of Narnia series. That's right, and we will be doing that in January, so plenty of time to read it. So get to it. Uh, who, you know, may, Maybe as you spend the holiday season, you can read it with your family and friends and so forth. Anywho, that about does it for us. Thank you for joining us. As mentioned at the top of the show, if you like what we do here with these books slash movies, Marissa and I do a series weekly called Anatomy of Movie, where we talk about the latest movies that came out in an in-depth way going into the context. So it's not just a review show. Jeff Graham actually joins us from time to time. Time to time, if I've seen him. I don't see as many movies as these guys, but I try. Uh, Thank you for joining us at Serafini TV is where you can interact with Marissa. Jeff, work in the... Thank you for inviting me, guys. This is really fun. You know I'm the biggest Harry Potter fan in the world. So, Well, I don't want to claim that because they're certainly bigger, but I'm one of them, yes. and it was very fun to be here. I appreciate it. We're, we're, we're both, both Ravenclaws. Claws. There it is. Yeah. You say it at the same time. Yeah. I feel like I would be in Slytherin. I think that's probably oh, true, know, which isn't bad. Slytherins are ambitious. They're hardworking. You know, yes. well, where can people follow you? You guys can follow me on Twitter at Jeffrey C. Graham. I'm at Phil Sweet Tech. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next month with another Adapted. Bye. From executive producers Kevin Undergaro, Maria Menounos, and Jeffrey Masters, thanks for tuning in to Book Circle Online. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a comment. To suggest a book title or their author, you can tweet us at Book Circle On. This is Book Circle Online. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs>